Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Dan McCarthy joins us today. He is a contributor to First Things. In fact, his writings appear in, in many places that I think our readers are familiar with, uh, uh, both with First Things uh, and even in places like the New York Times. His review of two books on conservatism, in fact, in the, la- in the August-September issue, I, I, I think, I'll, I'll tell you, Dan, I think that was masterful, uh, the way you examine those books. And he's also the editor of Modern Age. He has written a foreword to a new edition of a book called The Conservative Affirmation by Wilmore Kendall, which was first published in 1963. It's been reissued, and Dan is here to discuss that work and Kendall himself. Uh, Welcome, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. I'm delighted to join you. All right. Well, first, a quick overview. Who was Wilmore Kendall? Well, you know, Wilmore Kendall was described by uh, Dwight MacDonald, who was a uh, left-wing but rather cantankerous uh, writer uh, back in the uh, 1950s as being a, quote, wild Yale Don. Uh, Wilmore Kendall was a professor at Yale University in the politics department at the time when William F. Buckley Jr. was an undergraduate there. And uh, Wilmore Kendall was the only conservative on the uh, Yale faculty, certainly in, in the uh, politi- political science department at that time. And so he became a tremendous influence on the young William F. Buckley Jr. In fact, he was probably the most important uh, academic influence on Buckley uh, during his time at Yale and then subsequently. Uh, Kendall was born in 1909 in small town Oklahoma. Uh, Back then, of course, uh, Oklahoma was uh, very close to being the Wild West. And uh, Kendall's father was a blind Methodist minister, a rather progressive one, in fact. Uh, And Kendall had a very interesting upbringing. Uh, You know, first of all, in uh, Oklahoma, He uh, eventually goes on and studies at Oxford University. He was something of a child prodigy early on, uh, but uh, as is the case with many child prodigies, uh, he ran into some difficulties in his adolescence uh, and led a uh, rather wild life at that point. Uh, As a a young uh, graduate student, uh, Kendall becomes interested in socialism and uh, Marxism, again, which was sort of uh, part of the intellectual fashion of the time in the 1920s and 1930s. And uh, at one point, he is working for the uh, UPI, the uh, uh, Newswire, in uh, Spain as a reporter. And this is a a couple of years before the Spanish uh, Civil War. And Kendall basically befriends a lot of non-Stalinist leftists. So that includes Trotskyists and socialists, uh, people who are not, however, aligned with the Soviet Union. And uh, Kendall discovers uh, later on in the decade that a lot of the people he knew back in Spain wind up getting killed uh, by the Stalinists rather than by the nationalists uh, over the course of Spain's civil war. So that's one of the disillusioning things that causes Wilmore Kendall to reflect on the real nature of socialism and communism in the interwar period. 
During World War II, Kendall goes to work uh, for the United States government. He works for uh, a couple of different uh, intelligence agencies uh, during uh, World War II. Uh, one of them uh, sends him to Latin America, where he is a uh, sort of leading figure in American information warfare, uh, basically propaganda. But also while he's in uh, Latin America, Wilmore Kendall becomes very adept at spotting the communists, uh, some of whom he knew actually back in his own graduate school days, but communists who have infiltrated America's State Department and America's uh, you know, branches of government and uh, who are um, either weakening the American uh, message in Latin America or who are actually actively promoting Stalin's message. Uh, and of course, during World War II, Stalin was an ally of the United States, but uh, people like Wilmore Kendall and others were quite well aware that Stalin was ultimately going to be a, a very serious threat to the United States as well. So that's his background. Uh, as I say, he eventually becomes a professor at Yale, and uh, then he becomes a contributor to National Review when Buckley founds National Review. And uh, Kendall has a rather tempestuous personal life, a couple of divorces and marriages. Uh, he has, uh, unfortunately, a very severe lifelong problem with alcoholism. And so his personal relations with Buckley and others wind up being uh, quite tempestuous. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, Buckley and others recognize Kendall as, along with James Burnham, probably the most brilliant contributor to National Review in its early days. And uh, Kendall, um, I think, is, you know, and I, I say this in the new forward I wrote for the conservative affirmation, Kendall is basically the philosopher of right-wing American populism. And his book, The Conservative Affirmation, makes the case that not only is populism conservative, but also that a conservative right-wing populism is the very foundation of our country. Uh, as expressed, you know, not just in the American Revolution, but in fact in uh, the Constitution itself and in the Federalist Papers. Right. Why is he not as well known today as Russell Kirk, say, or or Buckley, uh, or or even the, the when some of the libertarians like like Friedrich Hayek? Yeah, Kendall had such a uh, you know sort of high voltage uh, personality. Um, he was known for feuds and for crack-ups with friends. And so as a result, uh, you know, dear friends like William F. Buckley Jr. wound up uh, splitting with him uh, sooner or later. And as a result, uh, you know, Kendall didn't have the kind of network of admirers uh, that uh, many other leading conservative figures of the 1950s and 1960s had. Uh, Kendall's academic background was also kind of checkered. Uh, so I'd mentioned that he was a professor in the politics department at Yale. Yale, he becomes so unpopular at Yale because he's defending McCarthyism, which, as you can imagine, at Yale in the 1950s, is, uh, it's, it's unthinkable. Yeah. So this uh, gets the, the Yale politics department very eager to get rid of him. They, they shun him. They treat him very badly. And eventually what Yale does is they realize, well, we have a tenured professor here that we really want to get rid of. We can't fire him, but we can offer to buy out his contract. And that's what happens. Basically, uh, Yale decides to pay uh, Wilmore Kendall a sum of money to have Wilmore Kendall resign his uh, professorship. And at that point, uh, Kendall becomes something of an itinerant professor. He you know, teaches for short periods, uh, I think at UCLA, at Georgetown University, a number of other places. He eventually lands at the University of Dallas, which was just getting started uh, in the early 1960s. And uh, Kendall is actually a formative influence on the University of Dallas at its uh, beginnings. Uh, he helps to design its curriculum. He helps to recruit other faculty for the uh, university. And so Kendall's legacy survives in many respects through the University of Dallas, but also through a number of uh, friends and graduate students who in a quiet way carried on Wilmore Kendall's legacy. One of the most important of these was George, uh, George Carey, uh, who was a longtime professor at Georgetown University. And uh, Carey actually completes some of Wilmore Kendall's work 
after Wilmore Kendall's death in 1967, uh, Carey uh, helps to complete a book called The Basic Symbols of the American Political Tradition, which uh, is also very well worth reading. Hmm. You, you actually say that he is, quote, the most important conservative philosopher, and you mean that for our time. And one thing that you point out and that appears in, in this book is the theme, the populist themes that we see in conservatism today, the mistrust of American elites, that he was one of the important, maybe one of the first voices of the skepticism of the experts, you know, that, that seemed to come forward after after the war, when the best and brightest are gonna are gonna lead us into into the you know the the liberal millennium, uh, are are the things he writes about populism, elites, conservatism in nineteen sixty? They really do apply well today. They do. In fact, I think that they apply even better today than they did uh, when the book was first published in nineteen sixty three. Uh, Kendall, uh, you know, in defining conservatism at the very beginning of the book, he talks about how conservatism is a reaction to what he calls a liberal revolution. And in 1963, at a time when the Beatles had not yet appeared on Ed Sullivan and when JFK had not yet been assassinated, it may have seemed like America was, you know, a place that was not untroubled, but this was a time before the Vietnam War. It was a time before all of the, you know, sort of rising crime of the 1970s, uh, long before Roe v. Wade, long before uh, all the culture war issues that today define much of politics in America. And yet Wilmore Kendall already perceived back in 1963, because of the way in which liberalism was operating, because of the way it tried to centralize power, it tried to redefine democracy as something that would be managed by sort of presidential candidates invoking vague, abstract uh, values like equality. Kendall recognized how already there was a revolutionary force on the left uh, that was uh, seizing power, corrupting the American constitutional order, uh, and uh, all of Kendall's predictions, all of his uh, fears and anticipations wind up uh, bearing fruit over the next six uh, decades. And that's why I really want, uh, you know, sort of uh, listeners and readers to rediscover this book. Uh, I think they will find not only is Kendall's diagnosis prescient, but he actually supplies us with the alternative to this revolution. He shows us the way in which, uh, you know, the counter-revolution requires that we reclaim, uh, you know, Congress. It requires that we reclaim local self-government in congressional districts and in towns and, and you know localities across America. All of this, of course, uh, with the November election becomes very, very salient indeed. But in general, uh, Kendall is quite right about the contrast between the majoritarianism that our founding fathers understood, which was a majority that was channeled and uh, you know sort of uh, diversified through local institutions, and the sort of uh, a false plebiscitary, you know, nationwide kind of majoritarianism that you see the Democrats and progressives uh, championing today. And of course, you know, many of the things Kendall's already talking about in the conservative affirmation, the idea that uh, liberals want to get rid of the filibuster, liberals want to, uh, yeah. you know, ultimately like to get rid of, uh, you know, um, uh, absolute representation of the states in, uh, you know, the Senate. Uh, this has been very much, uh, you know, on the Democratic agenda. Uh, in the early years of the Biden administration. So uh, this is, it's, a, it's a prescient book, but it also, like I say, is important, not just for what it predicts, but also for the uh, you know, sort of fundamental ideas that it gives us that allows us to fight back against what the progressives are doing. And Kendall is, is, you know, also touches on subjects like uh, free speech. And uh, he is, on the one hand, someone who recognizes that 
the open society is something of a fraud, something of a, a self-defeating failure, because the open society where absolutely everything is, is, uh, can be questioned is one in which, uh, you know, is, is vulnerable to uh, radicals who want to come and overthrow it and want to advocate ideas that are going to destroy the society itself. So on the one hand, you know, many people on the new right who are very critical of the idea of free speech will find Wilmore Kendall to be someone who is quite sympathetic to their point of view. But on the, other, on the flip side, because Kendall says that this whole open society uh, you know, apparatus doesn't work, he also is revealing the ways in which uh, progressives would f- ultimately, no matter how much they claim fealty to John Stuart Mill and the idea of total free speech, that ultimately liberals themselves would wind up cracking down on free speech, drawing lines of acceptable, permissible expression of opinion, and basically defending their own public orthodoxy. So again, Wilmore Kendall gives us the theoretical background to support a lot of the intuitions that populists uh, and, and, and conservatives have had all along. But all along, we've been told that, oh, populism is for stupid people. It's just yeah. a reaction. It's just emotional. There's no serious sort of philosophical defense or background to populism. Wilmore Kendall, who has you know impeccable intellectual credentials, shows that, in fact, there's a very strong, sophisticated intellectual defense and expression of populism. And, and that well, what you said a few minutes ago, you, you, you also say in your foreword that conservatives themselves often fumble to articulate a distinctively conservative tradition in American life. A lot of them kind of accept, you know, classical liberalism. That's, that's, that's America. And that liberals often make conservatives look, look a little foolish or, or weird. And that the conservative affirmation is actually designed in part, I mean, one of the rhetorical purposes is to give conservatives confidence to affirm, not, not just be sort of those who are trying to conserve an old liberal tradition or slow down the progressives, but actually, no, no, we, 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 have, we have something of our own here. Correct? We do, and it's something American as well. So uh, already in the 1950s and 1960s, conservatives were being told that their philosophy was un-American. And, you know, some conservatives were looking were themselves looking abroad to try to say that, uh, well, we need to recover, you know, a sense of uh, our European patrimony, which is certainly true culturally. We want to do that. But the idea that Americans can't be conservative because we don't have a monarchy or we don't have a uh, landed aristocracy, Wilmore Kendall shows that that's untrue, that in fact, we did have our own version of conservatism, and it was based precisely in this tradition of local self-government. And it was local self-government, not willy-nilly, but local self-government that explicitly understood itself as being under God. And that's a a point that comes out very powerfully, both in the conservative affirmation and in Kendall's uh, subsequent book, uh, The Basic Symbols of the American Political Tradition. So conservatism is not un-American. It was not unrepresented in America during the founding uh, period or during the American Revolution. And um, Kendall is able to rebut and debunk this mythology, which unfortunately today a great many conservatives have bought into, which says that America has nothing but a liberal founding, nothing but liberal, uh, you know, um, uh, origins, and therefore, you know, the most that an American conservative can possibly be is in fact a classical liberal and someone who's really just defending an older form of liberalism. And uh, you know, I mean, Kendall doesn't uh, explicitly tell us uh, in the conservative affirmation that classical liberalism must lead to. Uh, all of the excesses of modern liberalism and progressivism. But uh, that's certainly a hypothesis that fits uh, much of the evidence that Wilmore Kendall supplies. And uh, in general, uh, Kendall realizes that, you know, 
classical liberalism, whatever might be said for it, is just not capable of uh, defending against the left in the way that conservatism is. And, uh, you know, Kendall, in the beginning of his book, is very clear to say that the conservatives are the counter-revolutionary party. They are the party that, that before anything else, are resisting this liberal, this, this, this uh, left-wing progressive revolution. To the extent that, uh, you know, there is a political sort of Bible of conservatism in America, uh, Wilmore Kendall points to the Federalist. But Kendall is very uh, careful to show that James Madison, for example, while he's certainly a critic of direct democracy, he's a critic of plebiscitary democracy, Madison is not, of course, against popular self-government, and uh, nor, for that matter, was someone like Alexander Hamilton. Uh, popular self-government had to be uh, channeled in the right ways, uh, and local institutions and uh, you know, constitutional institutions that allow for sort of different slices of public opinion to be represented in different uh, you know, chambers of Congress, and also in different time frames with the different uh, electoral periods for the House and the Senate and the President. All of that creates a channeling of uh, popular opinion, that allows yeah. popular opinion, public opinion to be much wiser and much better advised than it would otherwise be. So Kendall is very useful in showing us how you know, uh, conservatives can be comfortable with popular self-government and how we can avoid being confused by liberals who claim to speak for democracy. What they actually mean by democracy, when liberals talk about it, of course, is a democracy that is on such a large scale that it is diluted, that people don't know, you know the representatives that they're talking about, they don't know the issues that are you know, sort of most important locally, and instead uh, these candidates, these presidential candidates or others, are talking in vague generalities about nice things. The perfect example of this, of course, and, and you know, again, you just see how wonderfully prescient Wendell, uh, uh, Wilmore Kendall was. The perfect example of this was Barack Obama. What yeah. does Barack Obama campaign on in 2008? Hope and change. Just yeah. the most vague, you know, most nice, you know, who could possibly object to hope? And of course, change, you know, if you don't have hope, then you do need to have change in the direction of hope. But it was totally meaningless. And what you actually get when Barack Obama takes power is, of course, a vast uh, expansion of administrative power, uh, you know, attacks upon local self-government, attacks upon, you know, the conscience of Christians, uh, you know, just an absolute disaster. So Wilmore yeah. Kendall recognized that even in the vague rhetoric of someone like Barack Obama, you have something that's actually quite a serious threat to the kind of self-government that James Madison envisioned. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, there's, there's a, a, a populist sentiment in, in the book. There's a sentence, I, I, I mentioned this to you before. It, it reads, this is on page 110 of, of the current volume. One begins to suspect that the true American tradition is less that of our 4th of July orations and our constitutional law textbooks with their cluck clucking over the so-called preferred freedoms than quite simply that of riding somebody out of town on a rail. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, you know, Wilbur Kendall always used to say that the American people are conservative in their hips. So they are conservative even before they think about 
you know, what sort of intellectual heritage they want to attach conservatism to. They're conservative simply in their way of life, uh, in their way of life within, you know, sort of well-ordered local communities. And of course, that way of life has been under attack, you know, in, under intensifying attack since Wilmore Kendall wrote the conservative affirmation in 1963. And one of the, you know, difficulties that I think conservatives have to confront today is whether the old habits of self-government, the old habits of sort of communities that form virtue have been so damaged by economic globalization, by the concentration of power in Washington, D.C. and in an unaccountable bureaucracy, by the deference that we give to ideological science as opposed to, uh, you know, the common sense of local people and local communities, whether all of these forces which have eroded uh, local self-government and local self-responsibility and individual self-responsibility, household self-responsibility, whether the erosion has reached such a point that there is no recovery. And I think Wilmore Kendall would resist the idea that there's no recovery, but I think he would also recognize that we are in a situation that has deteriorated considerably since uh, the conservative affirmation was first written. One of the uh, fundamental questions that conservatives confront today is in looking at you know, a chapter of, of Wilmore Kendall's book like The Two Majorities, where he contrasts the generic uh, uh, presidential majority with its vague rhetoric, with uh, you know, congressional majorities, which tend to be much more focused on local issues in their own districts. Whether you know, things have decayed to such a point that you in fact need to have some sort of right-wing or conservative version of the presidential majoritarianism. Uh, this is a, a question that Jeffrey Hart was starting to examine even back in the 1970s. And of course, today, uh, you know, you have a number of conservatives who are asking that, thinking of someone like Donald Trump, for example, as playing a necessary role uh, on the presidential level in turning back some of these forces, especially the federal bureaucracy that have been destroying uh, the Madisonian localized framework of self-government in this country. One of the things I think is very valuable about the, about the conservative affirmation, it's not just something where you're expected to either take it or leave it when Wilmore Kendall gives you one of these arguments. Instead, his arguments are talking about real phenomena, which you can understand in both directions. And sometimes the phenomena he's describing are purely destructive. Sometimes they're phenomena, however, that we have to be prepared to think about using ourselves, including this idea of presidential majoritarianism. And in telling us this, you know, I think Kendall is certainly giving us a warning that this, this weapon is, uh, you know, fundamentally erosive of some of the things we value most. But at the same time, there are so many other, uh, you know, threats to our uh, the life of our communities that we may actually have to contemplate some of this use of the, uh, you know, the other majority, the presidential majority uh, that we otherwise would prefer not to use. You know, Kendall makes much of that tension between the executive and legislative branches. Do you, actually, maybe this is a question for you, Dan. Has Congress largely handed? many of its duties over to the courts and to the regulatory agencies? And, and did, did Kendall see something like this coming? Kendall did indeed see something like this coming. You know, there is a uh, line that I have underlined. I can't uh, pull it out right now. But uh, uh, towards the end of the book, he uh, has a series of uh, little essays on books that were published. Uh, you know, basically, they're, they're book reviews, uh, which, which may seem like a curious thing to include uh, in a volume, but in fact, they're very interesting because they show uh, how conservatism, as Kendall understands it, applies to a number of topics that other authors are writing about. And uh, Kendall has a couple of passages in one of these reviews where he talks about basically the rise of the administrative state and how the administrative state is a complete end run around uh, self-government as understood by our founding fathers 
and is one of its deadliest enemies. Um, so, I, I, you know, like I say, I think Kendall uh, arms us with a number of conceptual weapons in the conservative affirmation, which in some cases we may have to use in different ways today than Kendall may have imagined uh, during his own time. But certainly the, uh, the, well, the uh, administrative state was already a serious danger back in the 1960s and has only become more so today. Yeah, there, there's a uh, there's a social factor here that Kilmore uh, that, that Kendall understood very well. The certain that, that distaste right for the common man. He saw liberalism going from the you know the New Deal, which extolled the common working man, into again what we see so often now among the elites. You know the the, the deplorables, all, all that attitude. He he sensed that coming, and did he see some of that on the conservative side too? He did. I mean, what he really saw was that conservatives were confused about their own tradition. And uh, back in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, you, uh, Will, uh, Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind is published in 1953. You have uh, books by Clinton Rossiter and Peter Virick that are both presenting, you know, uh, versions of conservatism that are relatively more accommodating of modern liberalism. Uh, you know, someone like Peter Virick winds up being quite a uh, supporter of um, Adlai Stevenson, for example, in, in the 1950s. And, uh, and then you have, you know, other conservatives who are, uh, who just feel alienated from America. And Wilmore Kendall says, you know, it doesn't make any sense to call yourself a conservative. You actually dislike the country in which you live and mm. its tradition, you know, uh, going back 200 years. Uh, so I think Kendall would be, you know, um, uh, very provoked right now by the tendency of some conservatives to be despairing of America and to think that it's been hopeless from the beginning and that, uh, you know, there's, there's simply nothing here worth conserving. Um, and Kendall certainly saw that, you know, this tendency towards despair and this tendency towards alienation was already powerful on the American right, even back in the 1950s. And it was because of some intellectual errors that basically um, a, too many conservatives have bought into the liberal idea of what conservatism was supposed to be and the liberal idea of what America was supposed to be. And of course, liberals said that America could not be conservative. So think of someone like Lewis Hartz, for example, uh, writing the liberal tradition in America, saying that America simply never had a conservative tradition because it didn't have these feudal institutions. And Wilmore Kendall says that's not the issue. The issue is actually rather the liberal revolution, which I describe the liberal revolution in terms of the sort of accumulation of power in Washington, D.C. But I want to bring out another facet of Wilmore Kendall's book, The Conservative Affirmation, which is that he does talk about the fundamental underlying moral questions here and the questions of sort of moral cause cosmology that underlie this liberal revolution. And Wilmore Kendall's quite explicit. He sees the liberal revolution as being a, you know, sort of militantly secularizing revolution. He sees it as having roots in Niccolo Machiavelli. He sees it as being, uh, at least in its first uh, in incarnation, as being extremely relativistic and ultimately nihilistic. And the alternative to that is the Western great tradition of Christianity, the Western great tradition of Aristotle and of classical philosophy. And these are the things that are being ultimately destroyed by the revol liberal revolution. And Kendall believes that, you know, if we return to our Madisonian, our, you know, sort of federalist uh, papers, uh, philosophy and roots, that we will be actually be able to preserve and strengthen and recover uh, the Western great tradition that has been endangered and is being attacked uh, all the more intensely over time by the liberal revolution. I, I have to mention another remarkable uh, observation of his. He notes that in those institutions 
occupied by liberals who insist that we be open to new ideas and not insist on any doctrine or orthodoxy, we find, quote, a disciplined chorus of voices all saying virtually the same thing in the same accents. Uh, is, is there any better description of these, of these diversity institutions today than, than, than that kind of uniformity, Dan? There's no better description, and uh, that's one reason why I'm really eager for people to pick up the conservative affirmation. I think they'll be uh, absolutely astonished at how accurate and uh, apt Wilmore Kendall's language is for the circumstances we're facing today. Uh, Kendall, you know, has a very sharp essay, a very sharp chapter on the difference, uh, you know, between public orthodoxy on the one hand and um, what's called the open society, to use the, the you know, Karl Popper term that is also very popular, of course, with George Soros. Uh, but the open society is this you know, sort of uh, liberal ideal of a society in which even the most fundamental principles may be questioned. Uh, there's no orthodoxy. Uh, you know, absolutely everything is up in the air. Everything's open for debate. Uh, and Kendall shows that that is basically a sham. First of all, it's philosophically inconsistent, incoherent on its own terms. And second of all, when liberals actually get power, uh, as they already had in America's uh, educational institutions back in the 1950s and 60s, liberals use that power to enforce their own orthodoxy. And so one of the things we have to be clear about is we are in a, a battle between different public orthodoxies right now. And while you know that doesn't mean we should be indifferent to concerns for liberty and that we should be uh, you know, sort of indifferent to the need for serious discussion uh, that is, you know, sometimes open-minded among scholars. Uh, that's quite different from saying that society itself is this completely amorphous and directionless thing, which, uh, you know, ultimately winds up, of course, uh, being co-opted by liberals who have a very clear direction in which they'd like to take us, and it's a very revolutionary direction. Right, right. Uh, la la last observation, he was perfectly happy with a poll of ordinary Americans showing that two thirds of them objected to an open communist teaching in the local high school. He, he actually thought that that, that that kind of, that was a kind of wisdom in his eyes, yeah? Not only was that a kind of wisdom, but just think about how that applies today. So today, of course, we have uh, indoctrination into transgender ideology taking place in our high schools. And, uh, you know, conservatives at the gut level realize, well, this is something we can simply say no to. We can simply say, no, you will not teach this to, you know, uh, school children. Uh, this is something we will simply exclude from our public institutions, uh, certainly the public educational institutions. Kendall, you know, saw that this battle had to be fought on, on philosophical grounds, even back in the days of communism. And, you know, liberalism has been able to take the precedent that was set by the idea, well, you, can, you can't fire communists from high schools. Well, if you can't do that, then how can you fire people who are going to you know, evangelize the gospel of transgenderism or yeah. you know, uh, otherwise engage in you know, the most radical deconstructions of the most fundamental you know, institutions of our society? Uh, so Kendall, again, arms us with the arguments that we need for the fights we're in the midst of today. Uh, and he did that you know, in a rigorous philosophical way already back in the 1960s. The book is The Conservative Affirmation. It's by Wilmore Kendall. Uh, Dan McCarthy has written the foreword to it. Dan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 
2930.